Welcome to this episode of Military Mindset for Business, where we go from combat logistician to C-suite. So today's guest is good friend of mine, Luke Morris, and we're going to unpack his story from going from being a combat logistician, running operations in theatre in Afghanistan, through to his transition to how he became the supply chain director for Audi Australia. So from combat logistician to C-suite executive in just a couple of short years. Uh, this episode is really interesting about how we unpack some of the basics of military mindset and how businesses, whether big or small, all seem to go through the same problems. So a really fantastic episode with a really intelligent guy, Luke Morris. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. So for today's Military Mindset for Business podcast, I've got a good friend and former colleague, Luke Morris, here joining me. Um, Luke's got a really fascinating story for me, and I'm really interested to learn uh, really about his application of what he did in the military, which is really a supply chain specialist and how he's been able to transition those skills through to you know, pretty significant roles with significant players in, in the Australian corporate space. So, hey, Luke, welcome. Thanks, Pete. Nice to be here. Uh, fantastic. Um, so, Luke, one of my former uh, RMC classmates, Royal Military College Duntrin classmates, um, we've had parallel careers as logisticians in the Army. However, you went into supply chain. Can you just take me back to the start and really got you? Why did you join the military in the first place? Where did you come from? Give us a way back. Yeah, sure. No worries. So I grew up in Adelaide and, um, and my family are all still based there. Uh, I didn't necessarily have direct military service in my family, with the exception of my, my two grandfathers. One was a, a British uh, medic and the other one was a, an rifleman in the uh, Australian Army, both in World War II. Uh, my grandfather on my father's side in the British Army um, commissioned in the field, actually, to, to be an officer. Uh, and he had a long military career, but he, he passed away before I was born. So I never actually got to speak with him. Uh, and on my mother's side, same thing. My, my grandfather passed away early, but he, he, he was served in Papua New Guinea and got a mention in dispatches for some, um, combat action there. And uh, so I grew up as a, as a child sort of hearing a little bit about this, uh, but it wasn't really a big focus for me. Uh, and probably uh, my teenage years, around 15 or 16, uh, I was very into sport, uh, you know, had lots of lots of mates and very active and i did a um uh like one of those leadership adventure uh courses as a sort of a teenager where you go away on a sailing ship for a week and you sort of you know learn how to be a bit of a leader and i absolutely loved it uh and i thought to myself you know i i, I don't really you know want to do a job where i'm sort of sitting in an office all the time you know i look at what my 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 friends had been doing all those who are graduating and they're going to university and that that was appealing to me but I, I kind of wanted something a little bit more dynamic. Um, and so I actually just uh, rocked up to the recruitment agency one day in the city in Adelaide and just said, look, I'd, I'd like to apply. Um, and they said, do you have any idea what you want to apply for? Uh, and I didn't know anything uh, about sort of uh, the Australian Defence Force Academy, RMC. Uh, and I just said, look, uh, I'm just happy to throw my hat in the ring and, and see what happens. Um, it's kind of funny because that's almost the... Um, the same mantra I still have today, uh, and um, uh, and and I did did the assessments, and they said, look, you know, you're suitable to to go to this Defence Force Academy, um, yeah, and uh, go to be an officer. And I said, oh, that sounds great. So what does that mean? Like, we'll we'll send you to university, uh, and we'll train you in that field, and where you go. So I was like, all right, sounds great. And then I signed up, and then all of a sudden, uh, I found myself at the Australian Defence Force Academy. So you rock up at ADFA. Um, what course? What degree did you do there? 
so it, again, it was really bizarre because I, I, so at school I was doing like maths, like physics, uh, some English, uh, like social sciences. And I went to ADFA and I selected a, an, an IT degree and a geography degree. So I double majored in information systems and geography. Um, and it was purely just out of interest because I, I, I wasn't really clear on, you know, what, what do I want to know academically, uh, which is more, this is interesting to me and, and the sort of job that I'm doing in the army is, is the one I want to do, hopefully. Uh, so this, this for me is sort of a, you know, bit of a rounding experience and kind of learn something new. Um, and then, uh, I remember probably towards the, the, the end of my time there, what I, what I really found was that, um, you know, the, the social sciences side of geography was really interesting for me, um, and the, particularly the human side. And, and I think that, that played quite nicely into, into being a leader and, you know, understanding people in various cultures later on. Um, and then on the uh, information system side, it was all about systems and systems and processes, et cetera, um, you know, have, have certainly been a big part of being part of my career since. Uh, it's for one thing that um, you know, our, trust the process is a business that's all about processes and systems. But for me, the ability to capture excellence and repeat has been something that's been foundational to everything that we've done in business. Um, so now you've gone, okay, you've, you've gone through ADFA, you've come over the hill, you've done your year over at Duntroon to focus on army specific stuff. Tell us about the next 10 years or so in a, in a couple of moments about your military journey. And what some of the key takeaways were from your personal experience in the army? Yeah, I think you know for the first thing I'd say is the friendships that that I built at at the Royal Military College have probably been the the strongest friendships I've ever had in my life. I think you know the you know like we're we're still in touch many 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 years later, and you know I talk to yourself and and others, and you know that that bond is super strong. And I think that actually is repeated throughout my military career as well, around where where you've gone through an experience with your colleagues and you're all on the same page. Um, and so in the the sort of remaining nine years that I served, I spent my first three years up in Townsville and I deployed on the mentoring uh, and reconstruction task force too, to, uh, to uh, Tarankot in Afghanistan for seven months um, and then uh, moved to Brisbane uh, as a captain uh, and had a number of roles. I worked with the, uh, the artillery regiment and deployed with them to Kabul on the uh, Afghan mentoring uh, and training task force. Uh, it was a very small uh, element, of man, I think about 15 or 20 people training uh, in a camp of 14,000 ANA. Um, and then I went to uh, the largest logistics organisation, Defence, 9FSB as the adjutant there uh, for two years. Uh, and then I went to the uh, Deployable Joint Force headquarters uh, in Brisbane there for the last year, and I was doing supply chain planning for future operations for them. Um, and it was at that time they decided to make a move. So you were really lucky to get operational experience uh, in your trade. So just to confirm, was your first deployment to Afghanistan in a trade role? Uh, yeah, so I was I was the two IC of the uh, logistics unit. So there was a, a a niche capability, maybe about a hundred and seventy people. It was led by a good friend of mine, and I was his, his two IC. Uh, and so you know that was direct um, you know logistics operations in in a hostile environment, moving forward with the combat elements and setting up their forward supply bases. Just unpack that a little bit. What that role entails. So like in the military, we've got two big sort of divisions of uh, our manpower we've got the war fighters you know the infantry the armor the artillery they're out there you know at the sharp point then we've got the logisticians who are right up behind them supporting those elements tell us a little bit about you know your experiences in the theater about supporting the war fighters 
Yeah, so I was very fortunate that um, both of the uh, deployments that I had were with the combat elements as a supply chain SME embedded. Uh, and so I was pretty much operating, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder with them in a lot of ways. Um, and so I talk about my first experience and I give you a, a clear example of, of Mirabad, which was uh, a valley that when we, when we deployed, there was no, um, I guess, uh, coalition presence in that area. It was quite a strong Taliban um, hold. Uh, and we set up a, a patrol base in the in the middle of Mirabad and just sort of plonked it in there. And sort of my experience was to, to deploy with the, the engineers and the forward combat element to build the patrol base. So we, you know, there was an initial clearance operation that happened with the, with the infantry. Uh, and then we went and met with the infantry uh, and set up a stronghold with them. So you're talking, you know, digging, you know, your, your pits with them, living with them, um, you know, and helping to supply them, making sure that they've got everything from, you know, food, water, ammunition, comms gear, um, et cetera, and, you know, working out, working out how do you, you know, resupply them in, in some terrain that's quite challenging, either via, you know, air through helicopters or over through full drive sort of capable trucks and trailers, um, or in some instances sort of just doing small, you know, uh, four by four re uh, replenishment to the to most forward units. Really um, making me think here is, uh, again, a baptism literally by fire in, in, in some terms, but understanding those principles of supply chain and logistics really early in the most hostile situations, um, you know, the training in that that you like understood, it's one thing to do it in the classroom and understand how lines of supply and, and all of this work, but to actually get out there in the field and to have to make this happen in real time to sustain the fight. Uh, must have been a really great learning experience and set a great foundation for you. It, it certainly did. And I think for me personally, it sort of started to um, create a sense of what I stood for and the sort of logistician and supply chain person that I want to be uh, and, and how that sort of has echoed through the rest of my career around, you know, being reliable, being dependable, um, being a clear communicator uh, but most importantly, understanding the need uh, and being able to deliver that that need at the right time uh, with the least amount of inconvenience for them because, you know, they, they're often focused on their next objective or the next three objectives. And so it's important that you start to anticipate what they are and how do you position sort of supplies, resources, capability to support that so that you don't slow down the tempo. Uh, in fact, you can be a, a multiplier of the tempo because it allows them to you know, regenerate quicker and move forward. Can you give us an example of, uh, you know, this is just-in-time supply chain management in the field or in combat and how that actually worked? Can you just unpack a little bit more about being that combat multiplier and the effects of getting it right? Yeah, I think I think there's some some really good examples, again, in that, um, uh, in that experience that I had in, in my first tour. Uh, where we were sort of expanding into into new territory that that we need a lot of support in, and so obviously the the environmental conditions were challenging. So it was either super super hot in the middle of summer, or in the winter it was freezing. So you needed to make sure that you had the right equipment available for them to be able to have access to, uh, you know, the the amount of water that was required, where it where it could be accessed, how do you purify it making sure we had the right food, and particularly, you know, um, we were partnering with the, the Afghan army. And so obviously, the, you know, there needs to be halal available uh, meals to them and you know, some of the, the culturally sensitive components as well to allow them to, you know, be uh, productive as well. And so having a, having a clear view of sort of what's the, the strategy over the next few months, you know, what are we hoping to achieve? 
uh, and then having a think about, well, you know, if the, the combat elements or the, the, the this team here want to deliver this outcome by this time, having a think through, you know, what are the, what's the sort of resources they're going to need to deliver that? And how, how do we start to building a contingency and redundancy plans in so that if the plan doesn't go perfectly well, you know, how do we how do we support them and make sure that we we don't sort of dry up on particular commodities, for example, and so that there's there's sort of that ability to be agile. And I think it'd be a big key of that is sort of looking at you know apart from searching objectives, so um, so to speak, it's more about looking at you know what's the what's the long term outcome and what are they going to likely need to draw on at that ta- that stage, and then pull that forward at the right time, but not too early. So it's a bit of a balancing act. Uh, and making sure that you go, actually, yes, we've got that available here for you. You know, your vehicles are a force multiplier, so we need to make sure we've got the right maintenance equipment, for example, here for you. And I think they're the sorts of examples that I would, that I would draw upon. Um, and it became more complicated when we work in a coalition environment as well, where we're working, you know, in partnership with the US, uh, your Afghans and the Australian forces and the Dutch forces as well. But it, and this isn't just about stores. As you mentioned there, it's about maintenance, it's about health and medical assets, it's about transport. It is a multi-pronged logistic approach. So right now, we've, now we've come out of, um, so you've done that tour, you've come back to Australia, you've had a real you know, taste of you know, being right at the tip of the spear, supporting the warfighting assets. Unpack next when you got back into the military, where your career path took you, you know, ultimately to deploy Joint Force Headquarters, was that right? Yeah, so so when I came back, I actually was an assistant adjutant in um, in the logistics battalion in Townsville, and it was uh, a significant U-turn on life. Mm. Yeah. So from you know the tip of the spear, sort of combat elements, where really meaningful work, working really closely with the infantry, and I'd made some amazing bonds with these people, and then going all the way to the rear in logistics to water transport, uh, you know, and, and just going. This looks nothing like what I've been doing for the last two years, and I'm now in an administrative role. You know, look, processing paperwork, checking this and that, and and so you know, for me, it was it was a huge transitional shift, frankly, uh, to get to that. But mate, don't under don't underestimate the importance of doing the duty officer roster properly. You know, these exactly are, these are right. big time things. <laughs> now these, yeah, these are big right. time uh, big time important uh, you know important roles. So like yeah. again, but this is the, this constant. Um, Know, friction about being you know one moment you're over there doing the job for real next thing you just you just back into the routine of being like everybody else yeah um okay so I'm, I'm interested now about uh understanding so you've a real sort of tactical level up level of understanding of getting supply to the right people at the right time at the right place let's yeah. now unpack and go a little bit deeper into uh, military logistics from a broader scale um mm. particularly you know sustaining the you know sustaining the army from in a national perspective what, yeah. what kind of roles have you had an experience in that space yeah i think that where when i started going to when i uh, came back from afghanistan the second time and i was with uh nine force support battalion as the adjutant there um that was really sort of that strategic supply chain uh you know capability uh and i think bringing some of the experience that i had with the artillery was quite a nice um uh, added adage to that because it, we're doing third line uh, artillery support. So I remember during Talisman Saber, I can't remember what year it was, we're doing an artillery raid. So like one of the things I organised was direct um, artillery distribution from third line transport. So from non-FSB directly to the front line. So we were sort of starting to merge strategic and the tactical together. And so I think then then moving to to non-FSB and looking at how do we uh, sustain 
the force, not just sustain sort of the operation, was quite a big difference. So you're looking at hundreds of thousands of litres of diesel, looking at like containers and containers and containers full of water and food and ammunition and stores, um, and then, you know, deploying that in strategic reserves around Australia to make sure that, you know, we could do the job that we wanted to do. Looks like you want to ask something. Yeah, look, there's, there, I just want you to unpack them because I was never a scholar in any of my military logistic courses. But can you just share with us the difference between first, second and third line and fourth line support? Yeah, so first line support is your, your combat logistics, essentially. So in an infantry, infantry battalion, there'll be a, an embedded logistics organisation. And within those logistics organisation, there's effectively a business partner for um, each company. And that business partner is the first line logistics support. So they help to, to, to make sure they understand, you know, how many, how many bullets they need, how many, how much water they need, et cetera, and to get it to them. The second line logistics are sort of large logistics organizations that, that uh, cover transport, warehousing, medical maintenance, um, and a few other bits and bobs that support a, a brigade or support a combat organisation. So if you're looking at sort of geographically, like Townsville or Brisbane or um, Darwin, each of those have a brigade in them and they have a second-line logistics support. And so they know how to work really quite effectively with those combat elements, um, but they work with those business partners that I mentioned earlier. Uh, the third-line logistics support is really where you start to get in a strategic uh, supply chain uh, support. So re replenishing those brigade second line units that I spoke about. So you're talking bulk fuels, bulk liquids, bulk fuel, uh, food, uh, you know, medical uh, drugs. And these are also a key component of this is um, we start getting quite technical on your, on your maintenance um, requirements, but also from a from a field hospital perspective. So this is where you start seeing surgery uh, and other, other various capabilities that start to come in. And then finally, your fourth line uh, logistics organisation is basically strategic government procurement would be the way I describe it. So they're looking at I'm setting up contracts with civilian providers to uh, build submarines or, you know, buy food or et cetera, et cetera. And so they they are the sort of the stores and maintenance capabilities that exist really, really deep in the supply chain. And they're not really um, ever involved in the combat components other than sometimes the fourth-line logistics organisations will resupply our forces overseas directly to a port. So, for example, you know, resupplying uh, the, the base in Abu Dhabi the defence force room for Afghanistan. And this is a really interesting model now about how, so number one, depending on the size of your business unit or the size of your business, are you providing that capability internally for yourself? Are you re relying on that partner, which is one step back supplying you? Are you relying on your partner's partner, which is, you know, further back? Because if we have a look at the kind of assets we're at, that we're at the 9th Force Support Battalion, just talk us through those kind of assets, because I think that will clearly sort of describe what third line support's about. Yeah, so, so you're talking uh, like line haul, B-double transportation assets on mass. So, you know, trucks Big semi-trailers. Big semi-trailers. Uh, large warehousing capability. So, you know, you're talking, you know, probably 50,000 pallet, uh, 50,000 square metre DCs that hold like strategic reserves of food, uh, ammunition, etc. various parts. You've also got bulk fuel requirements. So they're holding hundreds and hundreds of thousands of litres of fuel and assets to deploy the fuel. Uh, and then it also has sort of hospital uh, requirements. But there's also an air dispatch unit there so looking at you know how do we use the the, the hercules etc to to supply our, our forces from the air if we need to do that as well 
So this is really interesting now, like, and this is the essence of military mindset for business. So let's have a quick snapshot or reflection of your career at this point. So we've done a we've done a university degree, even if it's generalist, then we come back and we do uh, some military training focused on the army at Duntroon. You're straight out then within a short time into the battle space of Afghanistan where you're doing combat resupplies. But then very shortly in a year or two later, you're mashing, you're, sorry, you're supporting the management of, of, of national level logistics. It's just such a broad spread in a very, very short time and a really drinking through the fire hose of experience. Absolutely. And I decided at the same time to do a master's in project management. Um, mm. And so it, it, I was talking to someone the other day. I, I studied, you know, information systems, project management and geography, and I do logistics. So I actually have never studied in the field that I work in other than this project management has a, has a lot of application to sort of what, what I have been doing the last few years. Um, and so, you know, that just added to the fire hose. However, it's it's really interesting, the, the military appreciation process, which is the, the military planning process, um, is by far the most fantastic planning process that I've ever seen. Uh, and it's far superior to anything I've seen in the corporate world um, as well moving forward. And so I think, you know, being able to bring that forward with the project management experience, with this this wealth of experience, you know, really helped sort of, as I started to lead defence. Well, mate, I'm going to throw you in the deep end here a little bit. So um, the military appreciation process can be scaled, you know, relative to applicability. So we've got a combat military appreciation process, which just takes you through, through a few really simple steps how to make a decision in the field through to, to an individual military appreciation process when you're doing a plan for your team, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Coming up to sort of a staff level, or let's just say, for example, a business doing a million dollars a year or a couple of million in revenue. Can you talk me through, and I'm, I'm going to throw you on the spot, uh, the couple of the stages in the military appreciation process for a business of that size? Yeah, sure. I mean, you've definitely put me on the spot because it's been eight years since I've, I've done one. But uh, I can help between the two of us. We can work it out. Yeah, I think the the first the first part is uh, you know understand the situation, right? And that's that you know it, the Akoka or the sort of the the landscape um, view is the most important part that any organisation uh, can look at. So it doesn't matter if you're a small scale, mid size, or, or a large size organisation, but someone around the sort of one to two million revenues mark, you know, should have a good understanding of who the what the competitive landscape looks like. And we're sort of not just talking about who am I competing against. We're talking about the market. So what's the market doing? What are the market trends? What are the market headwinds? You know, what's the economic headwinds that go with that as well? Um, you know, wh what are the opportunities? And what's the what's the the odds that the strategy is going to be successful? So as you start to to build that that towards, you know, how do you start to look at things? And you know, I draw some parallels between how do I how do I use the terrain to help with with my plan well how do i use the market and the gaps that i can see in the market to exploit my opportunities and i think that's the the, the first thing to look at the second thing to look at is around sort of the, the um critical capabilities construct that center of gravity construct that's what it's called uh with you know critical capabilities critical requirements and critical vulnerabilities now for me i have repeatedly seen this as a weakness in the corporate sector um, that they, 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 uh, a lot of planning struggles to really comprehend, you know, I, they know what they need to need to execute, what they need to execute. They understand the requirements of that. So I'm going to need this resource. I'm going to need that. But one of the things that I think is overlooked quite, uh, quite a lot is what are my vulnerabilities? And so they're looking at vulnerabilities from a, you know, uh, this is going to cost me a lot of money. Well, that's actually not a vulnerability. That's just a fact. 
Uh, and a vulnerability is I'm weak in this area or I don't have sufficient uh, contingency plans to ensure that if I have an outage or, you know, I, I lose a little bit of capability that I can maintain my operations through this. And so that's one of the things that uh, I think, it, you know, starts to bring forward and we talk about a military mindset of business. Military leaders and ex-military people naturally do this. They look at, you know, how do I protect my weaknesses? Really interesting you say that because in my experience, in all of the business that I've done and with the people that we've worked with, Business has, you know, generally a lot more of a, just a blue sky should be right. You know, let's just roll through the roll through the plan and everything will be okay. Whereas the military looks at the exact opposite. We expect everything to go wrong, you know, and we prepare for everything to go wrong so that at that moment we can react quickly and we can take advantage of the situation going wrong. Yeah, and I think I think that that is you know having that baseline and that understanding of the mission analysis profile is the most important aspect. And I've, when I was in defence, I found the same thing. You know, what, if you get your mission analysis right, the rest almost happens naturally because it guides the rest of your decision making. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little part, particularly around the strategy room. And you know, I've been quite fortunate that I've, I've been in a few senior roles um, and been part of the strategy process for some businesses. You know, with like thirteen billion in revenues. You know, look at the, the mission analysis is something that's probably not given the the time and effort that it's needed in, in some instances. Um, and, you know, I, I think about sort of that one to two million sort of um, business, you know, people will think, well, I'm not large, I'm not a large business per se, so I don't need to spend as much time on that. Well, actually, it's probably the opposite. Being a small to mid-sized business, that's where all of your effort should be because after that, you're, you're really going to start to know, well, I've got two course of actions that I want to, that I want to work on from here. And you're probably immediately going to discount the third one because you'll know that's not where my strengths lie and that I can't protect the downside on that. So, you know, when you start to develop those course of actions, then you can test them. Um, and one of the things that I've also found is, is quite useful uh, is having people with different capabilities. So people in defence are very good at, at picking holes in plans um, because that's what we're trained to do. We're, t- we're trained to find here's a gap, how are we going to cover that gap? What if the enemy does this? What are you going to do about that? Well, what if your competitor does this? What's your strategy in the market? What's your what, what's your your brand pivot that you're going to make to be able to continue to be relevant? Um, and then starting to put those plans in place. And I think that the final part around that, particularly that one to two million revenue sort of business, we talk about decision and execution in the, the military appreciation process. We're actually talking about um, enacting a strategy and execution but supporting that execution with resources um, rather than the old adage of, you know, spreading your resources so, so thin it's like peanut butter on a piece of bread. You want to make sure that your resources are deployed in the right area with the right relationship uh, with the right people as well. Mate, I'm going to pluck out. That sounds like a principle of warfare. Isn't concentra- concentration of force maybe one of those? If yeah, I'm pluck- is indeed, yeah. Plucking back to my well, 15 years ago at RMT. Mate, yeah, that's um, right. You've really just broadly gone over the stages of the military appreciation process. And I, I think, you know, whether you're you know, a startup, one million business, one billion dollar business, these principles are the same. And, and we were using these same principles, you know, in a military unit where you might be uh, potentially running tens of millions of dollars worth of assets uh, into brigade or divisional kind of level where there's, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of assets. And more importantly, lives at stake in terms of how people really as a key part of this environment. Mate, I'd like to 
maybe unpack the next big chapter of your life um, and your transition from the military into the corporate world. Um, what made you do the, do the big jump and where did your life go next? Well, I, I sort of, I came, when I came back from my second tour in Afghanistan and I was working in the, the logistics organisation, I had a bit of a think about sort of what, what does success for me look like in the military? Um, when, I, when I started, all I could think about was, I'd love to go and deploy to a country somewhere and have this wonderful experience. And so after doing that a couple of times, I sort of found myself with a bit of a view of, do I want to be a lifelong military person? Um, and for me, you know, I had this sort of decision in front of me because for you, Pete, you would know, you know, there's a bit of a pathway that you follow. So you sort of do this job followed by this job, this job, this course, this job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I was waking up in the morning and, it, and that thought wasn't, exciting me as much as it previously had uh, and I think the reason it wasn't exciting me, exciting me as much as it had was because I hadn't tried anything else so I was like I'm not actually sure if you know the corporate world would, would suit me whether I like it whether I felt like I was selling my soul every day uh, when I when I go and do this, this sort, of, sort of work um, and so I started um, hunting around uh, for, for a role and I interviewed with a few organizations um, uh, but it just wasn't sort of appealing to me the roles that were sort of coming up and then I, I randomly got approached on LinkedIn actually uh, via a recruiter saying hey do you want to work for Aldi uh, and I remember the week before being in an Aldi store one had just recently opened uh, in Fortitude Valley in Brisbane where I lived and my immediate reaction was absolutely not uh, so um, I don't know what's going on inside there but it's absolute chaos uh, and I'm not sure that you know scanning groceries uh, you know is going to be something that's of interest to me uh, and, and they sort of said to me look look we, we would we would employ you in, in the leadership role. Um, you wouldn't be leading one store. You'd be leading, you know, probably five. Um, you, you would be, there's a training program that goes with it uh, and we would have someone that you buddy up with to be supported. And for me, I was like, well, actually, in terms of managing the downside, um, going to a company that's a, a, a enormous global organisation that was going to give me some training, that was going to partner me with someone, sounded like, well, that's going to minimise a lot of the risk. Um Sorry, go on. So when did this, uh, so this must have been around, what was it, 2012, 2013, something oh, like 2015. that? 2015, yeah. So it all, it, all happened, it all happened quite quickly. So I'd been at the Deployable Joint Force headquarters for about six months um, and from the initial contact to having the job offer was four weeks. So I wasn't actually really prepared for it, okay. frankly. Um, and, yeah, so I had to make a move. The reason I want to put the date on that is to really look at how your career, you know, and share how your career has really accelerated. So we've done our, uh, our nine odd years of being in what we call the real army outside of, of, of schools and universities. Um, you've now got into a leadership-based role, which was nothing to do with your, uh, let's call it your technical or core skills, uh, your trade skills in the military, but more of your generalist officer skills. Uh, you're now um, in Aldi. But that's your story with Audi um, really takes off from here. Yes. Yeah, so um, to, you're right, Pete. I mean, I, I wasn't hired because I was a logistics expert. I was hired because I had leadership capability. Um, yeah. And they had a view of we have an area in our business that's not performing very well. Um, Luke has experience leading teams in various environments for, you know, eight or nine years. We don't necessarily need to worry so much about does he have the right leadership capability. We just need to teach him how to do the retail side of the business. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, the, the gaps from defence really are, you know, profit and loss management. That's something that you don't really get exposure to. 
you don't really understand, you know, your commercial models around, you know, margin and, and how to control costs. Um, and then the other, you, you conceptually get it, but it's not something you've practiced in. Um, and then the other part is uh, working in, in a, uh, an environment where the um, in industrial relationship landscape is quite, is quite different to defence. So, you know, people under EBAs, under various contracts. And so there's kind of these nuances that you, that you weren't really familiar with. Um, so I started with them uh, uh, and I was meant to be on this 12-month training program and quick, quite quickly they, were, they sort of recognised we don't need to do that. So after about three months, they promoted me to be an area manager and I was, was working in Coss Harbour for um, about a year after that, just shy of a year. And I had a, had a, a bunch of stores that were, um, you know, not performing very well and I had to open a brand new store. So, you know, just to give you a bit of context to that, I'd been out of defence for four months uh, I had been thrown into an environment that I was completely foreign to me as now living in a different area with no one around who I knew, with a whole bunch of people who I was trying to get to know who worked for me, had to open a retail supermarket myself in this area and I was responsible for the entire thing. So apart, the, building was, the building was like there and then getting it from a shell to having racks, to having goods, to having a merchandising layout, having the price cards, complying with all the government requirements, hiring all the staff, getting them all trained. That was all my responsibility. So it was, you know, the fire hose drinking was on full at that stage, definitely. But even though that was brand new for you, it's not unknown in the military just to be doing one job in December, get posted to the other side of the country, given a totally different role in a totally different part of the military. And it's just basically right. Crack on. Here we go. Yeah, exactly right. And you, you have to you have to rely on the things that you know. And the things that you the things that you know are things you know about yourself. You know, mm. the, the if I put a plan in place and I follow that plan, it's probably going to work. I need to be able to, you know, adjust that plan as I go. I need to understand what's the goal I'm trying to achieve here and then what are the, the what are the needs that I have to deliver on that goal. Um, and also how do I empower my people? to do that how do i find the leaders who work for me and give them the, the direction and intent they need to go and do their part of the job and trust them to do their job as well um Mate, and so it's, it's a really great thing i just want to grab you there right because that is so super important the ability to be able to delegate to elevate you know that the world will not be you can't do everything yourself you've got to empower your people you've got great team members around you you've got to find out who the leaders are and how do you empower them to have that multiple or compounded effect on what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, and and the, the part of it with trust as well, because you know I think a, a lot of a lot of people are worried that people will make mistakes, um, but you don't learn unless you make mistakes. I've made plenty of mistakes in my professional career, military and, and corporate, and I've learned an immense amount from them. Uh, and so those people that work for me, sometimes you know it's okay that they make mistakes, and I, and I think it's again about managing the downside. For me, uh, for anyone listening out there, there's a really, just Google mission command, and it is a really simple way to empower your people. It's about not micromanaging, about not getting into the micro detail, but empowering great people to achieve your intent or your, your effect and allowing them to go out and build the plan for you. Again, some of these really simple principles. So, okay, within four months, thrown in the deep end, running stores, opening stores, leading teams, um, where to next? Um, I got a call from, from my boss who had said uh, the company had, had run an employee engagement survey 
Uh, and in their distribution centre, which was based uh, just south of Brisbane, there's a 55,000 square metre distribution centre. They, they got the results back and it was a really, really poor result. In particular, uh, the, the temperature sensitive, like cold handling areas, so everything that manages from produce to chocolates to milk to frozen fish. Uh, the, the employees that worked in that half of the DC, so it's about 20,000 square metres, um, their engagement score was was very, 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 very low. Uh, and they'd made a decision to um, make some changes in the leadership team. Uh, and as a result, they knew that I had a supply chain background from my time in defence and would, it, would I be interested in, in sort of taking on the role. Now, mind you, again, this is this is a new experience for me. The first the first response they got from me was, absolutely, let's go for it. Um, you know, just to sort of, you know, if, if that's the job that you feel that I'm going to be have the most impact in, then absolutely, let's go and do it. And that, again, is, is such a reflection of, of the military, which is, all right, here's your new set of orders. Here's what we're going to need you to go and do um, and, and crack on. And that's pretty much how I looked at it as well. Yeah, just, it's uh, just being bold, isn't it? You know, like you, you are... That point, you mentioned something a little bit earlier, which is really important here, is the belief in yourself. But the belief in yourself comes from not only uh, you understanding who you are as a person and your values, but the belief in your training and the structures that you've got at your support. Yeah. Uh, and I think the other part is that, um, you know, when people, people talk to me and I, I talk to them about this sort of stuff, they go, you're so confident. You know, you, you, you just backed yourself while shitting myself. You know, yeah. the, the whole time, you know, there wasn't a part of me that was like, I'm going to nail this immediately. There's a big part of me that's like, holy crap, what have I done? Like this, I have no idea what I'm doing here. And, uh, you know, uh, I, this is a completely foreign environment and it could go all very badly. Um, but, you know, I just focused on, on, on what I knew to focus, you know, which is I'm going to be working with people. Uh, yeah. that's one of the things I really enjoy. And I like looking after my, my team, building a team and making them successful. So it doesn't really matter what the topic is, what the technical capability is. There's going to be people in my team who know it better than I do. And I don't need to be the technical expert. I just need to be the person that's helping to open the gate on the road that they're already driving. And that's the kind of way that I look at it. Yeah, mate, this is so powerful. Being it, in this, There's a real um, drop of ego here in terms of not holding on to things, like really letting go. Coming back to what you're talking about, the old no cuff, too tough, you know, and that, that bias for offensive action, you know, we're just going to lean in and give it a crack. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, uh, my experience both having done that but also being a leader who has got people to do that for me is, um, you know, allowing them to go through that process and, you know, uh, finding their way forward because it's not a straight line. Yeah, I think a lot of people like looking at plans and going, here's my plan. I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that. And there's the outcome, perfect tick in the box. And that makes people feel really comfortable. But the reality is I love the old adage of no plan survives the first shot in battle, you know, and that's the same in the business world, which is I've got this fantastic plan. We've got an election coming up. My sales have dropped 20%. My plan is out the window, right? So, you know, I now need to have a think about what, what am I going to do differently? But the plan is good. So you just, can you find a way to make yourself wait back to the plan? Or do you need to just create a new plan? Um, and I think, you know, that, that's, that's a big part of it. I love it. I've started taking up a bit of amateur boxing in my, uh, in my middle years just to claim a bit of that, you know, former glory. And there's, a, you know, that classic Mike Tyson T-shirt. Uh, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Um, yeah. But the ultimate <laughs> thing is, at least yeah. after you get punched in the face, you've still got a plan to refer to. You know, once exactly. the dust settles and if the plan doesn't work, at least you've considered what's going on so you can make adjustments. Um, so we're now, we're what, within a year yeah. of oh, this? Yeah. 
yes. Yeah, so, so I've gone into to this role. Um, I, I had some employees that were just frankly very upset uh, with the the business, the work environment, uh, everything. Um, and it was all really boiled down to just some it was poor planning, poor resource planning. So uh, overspend on on financial. Uh, commitments and then a requirement to pull back quite hard on those financial commitments. In terms of costs in your PL, payroll is always a large cost and it's very easy for people to go, I need to cut my payroll costs because obviously if I do that, I'm going to change the way my PL looks. But what what you know when you're working in an environment where you need people to execute a plan and particularly in a labor intensive environment like warehousing and, uh, and transportation, you know, you can't just shave people off and expect to execute the same profitability levels and the productivity levels that you once did. So we started to create benchmarks and standards and said, you know, these are the, you know, these are the labor benchmarks that we need to have a look at. This is what on average most people are able to do. And why do we have these outliers? People that are performing way, way, way beyond that and people that are performing way, way, way below that. And so, you know, and, and being really open and honest, just as I would as, as an officer with my soldiers, you know, saying, we've got these people that are just absolutely blitzing it. You know, can you can you guys come and help train the rest of the team? Because there's obviously something you're doing that's way better than everyone else. Share it, share the knowledge. Also, you know, why are these people finding it so hard? You know, and and what we what we had found is that no one was following any of any SOPs because no SOPs had been updated. No one even really knew what they were. Uh, and so, you know, it was a case of saying, well, let's let's create the way that we want to work under this intent. And so creating a bit of a, a construct to say, what are the like to, to the point you made earlier around vision? You know, what's the vision that we have for this team? Where do we want to go, and how do we start delivering on that? And that really starts to to, to nest quite nicely into commander's intent. You know, one up and two up. Now that's a real surprise for me to hear that because again, I, we spoke about it at the start of this process and process and systems, and, and and I actually love I love it because for me, process equals capture excellence and repeat. And we do that for as long as we can until we learn, and then when we learn, we embed the new learning. And then we do that until we, you know, until we learn again. And I'm really surprised that, you know, in a multi-billion dollar company that, you know, that there's still these kind of room for improvement in big players. Yes. And I, it's, it's often I get the, that feedback as well, Pete, when, when I talk to people about it. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that um, like any organisation, when, you, when you're rapidly growing, uh, at, at speed, you know, you talk, Aldi were growing at, you know, double digit 20% growth annually for their first 10 years. It's enormous. Like it's extremely challenging to keep up with that. And there's parts of your organization that you need to keep growing to keep delivering on that and parts of organizations that will evolve naturally. Where the tipping point um, uh, occurs is when there's a change in the landscape. And I think this is where, you know, going back to mission analysis becomes so important, you know, in the business context and in the strategy room. So strategy rooms will go, well, for example, last year we had a sales growth of 7%. We ran an EBIT of 2.1%. So this year we're going to try and aim for a sales target of 7.5%, an EBIT of uh, 2.5% tick, done, right? You know, and so it, if you're growing, you probably don't have to think too much about it. It's going to happen anyway and your costs um, uh, are controlled because you've got more top line growth. But as you start to mature as an organization, your top line growth starts to come, instead of this huge curve, it starts to become a little bit more flat. All of a sudden through your PL, your, your fixed costs and your variable costs start to look a bit different as a proportion to the work that you're doing. And I think, you know, where Aldi were when I joined was there were a, uh, an organization that was heading into maturity, but didn't necessarily have the, the right 
structures, processes, people and capability in place to, to deliver on that maturity that they needed so that they could go to their next level that they wanted to, to achieve. And that's ultimately what, what I did in that space, which was set up, you know, and um, it, it was basics. It was focused on the basics. And I remember always thinking when I was in the army, you know, we'd have all these generals come out and talk to us as junior officers and you remember Pete saying, this year we're going to focus on the basics. And every time I thought, this guy, this is so, oh, my God, here we go again. Uh, you know, we're going to be out there doing God knows what is completely irrelevant, um, you know, and we're going to be doing it for months and months and months and months. Um, but, you know, as I've sort of matured in my professional career, what, uh, the amount of times that I've said we're going to focus um, on the basics is It is, is so powerful. It is so powerful. My first bit of advice as I marched into the 3rd Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment as a young platoon commander, from my boss at the time, who was a guy called Wade Stothart, he said, Pete, all you need to do to be highly successful in this place is be brilliant at the basics. You know, and I really didn't understand what that meant because when you get into a new job and you're really enthused and you, know, you, wanna, you just want to get in and make change, it's, problem, it's what you want, but is it what the organizational needs? And being brilliant at the basics has just been my mantra f- like for the rest of my career ever since, do the little things right and everything just rolls through. I've, I'm the same. And I found that, um, you know, senior executive roles and particularly in, in big businesses, they're highly stressful. Um, mm. And there's a lot of anxiety at the C-suite level and, and you know, the, a few a few levels down as well because everyone, everyone comes to work and wants to do the absolute best job they can. They want to deliver the profits to their shareholders that they say they're going to deliver. So it's, it's high-pressure environment. What I've always found is that, just simply saying, let's just focus on the basics. Anxiety comes down in that room. All of a sudden, people go, actually, well, what are the basics? And then you have this conversation and everyone knows them. And we go, when was the last time we had a conversation with our team about uh, performance reviews? You know, when was the last time we had a conversation with our team about, you know, let's, let's take five minutes and go, are we doing the right process here? You know, and, you know, do we, are we, is there any steps we can just eliminate? You know, have we spoken with our team and said, you don't follow the process, why not? And they say, well, this process is way faster. I'm like, well, let's change it, you know. And so there, there's sorts of things. It's like there's small iterations make a huge impact. And, and, you know, when you're looking at controlling costs more broadly, you know, you can have a look at these, you know, strategies. And I spent the last year working in a, in a consulting firm in a strategic advisory role. Um, and, and, you know, there's a number of uh, engagements where you're sort of saying, here's our, you know, four-year strategic plan to help you achieve your, your business model of the future, which is really important. But actually, you're going to need people who are good at executing it today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day. Um, and that, that for me is something that's a skill that we learn in the military, which is where do I want to be in the future, but actually how do I get there? Um, and I think that that's something that, that gets a bit of a miss. You know, simple is the new, is the new black, you know. To look, at, to look at it from a footy analogy, just kick straight. You know, do the basic stuff first and everything just, you know, falls into place. So yeah. where are we now in your Audi career, yeah. mate? So now you're, now you're yeah, looking so- after the shed? Yeah, so I, I did that for a couple of years. At one stage, I, I had the warehousing team and I had the transportation team. And because I was a Royal Australian Transport Corps uh, person in defence, you know, transport was, you know, like my, my second nature. Um, so, you know, for me, putting warehousing and distribution networks together makes sense because that's how we work in defence. So we don't necessarily separate it out. Um, and so I worked with that for about three or four months uh, and I had about 200 employees or so. Uh, 15 direct employees. It was crazy, um, but it was, you know, it was, it was, I felt really alive because there was just so many 
things happening at all, any one time, and it was great. Um, uh, but it, it probably wasn't sustainable for the long term, but it worked for what needed to happen. Uh, and I actually was approached in, uh, by the managing director of supply chain at Aldi and asked if I would move to Sydney um, and be one of his directors to set up the supply chain team for, for Aldi. So traditionally, Aldi had a federated model, a decentralised model, where each of these DCs sort of ran their own show. And what they wanted to do was create a centralised model where there was a central supply chain team that looked at it from a national view. Uh, and they had a small little acorn in there already that moved some shipping containers, about maybe 10,000 shipping containers annually, and mostly for that stuff you see down the middle of Aldi, uh, the special buys. Uh, and they wanted to, to, to grow uh, Aldi's influence over the supply chain and create a version of Woolworths Primary Connect. And so Woolworths have, a, a, have their own logistics organisation called Primary Connect, and they do uh, a lot of transportation, road, rail, sea, et cetera. And they wanted to set that up for Aldi and they asked me to come in and, and do that for them. Uh, and so I accepted and, and moved to Sydney in uh, the middle of 2018. Uh, and it's been a bit of a wild ride since. So I um, I stepped into into an organisation that that was um, uh, had no clear plan, would be the way I'd describe it. Um, wasn't sure what it wanted to be. Uh, didn't really know how to get there and had a, had resources or people that had been working in the organisation for you know quite some time and didn't necessarily have a vision of, of, of what the future could look like. And so for me, um, for me, it was very clear. When I came into that, into that role, I was basically creating, uh, you know, brigade headquarters uh, would be the way I describe it. Well, mate, I this is about time that we caught up again. And I remember it would have been Anzac Day down at Coogee Bay Hotel catching up um, over a beer or two. But I was actually, just, I couldn't believe that. Actually, weren't you just in the army yesterday and now you're a uh, supply chain director at Audi? Like, I was like, where did that come from? That's um, like, <laughs> just right place, right time. But, um, uh, and also, you know, I was very, very lucky that I had some advocates that, that supported me in, in Aldi to, to give me that job. I think, you know, uh, I worked in that role for for a few years and then moved on. The reflection that I would have of of myself is that yes, I was very lucky to to have that role. It was a really really fantastic learning experience for me. Um, but I was probably one of the few people in Aldi who was technically competent in supply chain, had a, a strong operations background internationally and, and locally and, and from defence, and knew how to to work in an ambiguous difficult environment where stakeholders weren't necessarily happy with you at any stage, um, you know, and, and how to start something off the ground. And really what what that, what I always came back to in that scenario, I remember some, someone saying to me, what's it like? And I said, it's like treading water and someone keeps pouring more water in at the same time. Um, and it makes me think, you know, about, you know, focus on what you know and, and what you know about yourself. And what I knew about myself was that I had been in some random situations in my time in defence and all of them I found a way through. And, you know, it's not a case of me finding a way through them. It's actually me and the people around me finding a way through them. So how do I find the right advocates? How do I find people to, to talk to and advice that I needed to help me through that? Um, now this, this just, these themes just keep coming back and back. The more, I, the more I learn and explore this military mindset for business for myself, these same core principles come back. You know how to how to you know delegate to elevate empower people to be multipliers for you. It's not about holding on to things. You've got to empower those things around you because we're only limited in what we can do. And, and Being really at the basics. Yeah, and I think the other key one is um, try and take your ego out of the equation. Um, yeah. 
and and that's it's not it's not an easy thing particularly when your ego is being like hammered by you know where, where people come to you and say oh i'm not very happy with this and what you're doing i, I don't like and blah 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 mm. and it's it's hard particularly when you're putting a lot of yourself into it to be like actually you know this isn't like my i need to be aware of my ego here i need to be aware of how this is making me feel and how i'm reacting um and i should go and ask someone about it people i trust and so the, the key the probably the biggest learning i had in that job was many but one of the biggest learnings was i need a network of advisors around me who i can talk to um and so i was at that point like people had said to me you know it's, probably, it's good to have mentors in your in your network and i didn't really have many um and it was at that point that i was like i need to actively go and find some mentors and ask their help um and it was very it was very i felt very vulnerable doing that because you know all of a sudden you know i'm, I'm asking people who i don't really know that well to come and help me uh and saying hey can you can you give me a hand i kind of need some support and um and i was very grateful that i found about three or four very good mentors one who was ex-military one who wasn't um that uh, all just immediately said yes i'd love to give you some advice if, if you think i'm the right person now, when you did um, humble yourself, even though you were in an executive and a leadership position at that time, how did you feel that those me mentors responded? Because it's always a bit of a, like a, uh, well, it is a vulnerable moment when you have to go and say, hey, I need help with this. But what was the reaction of the mentors to you actually you know, being open and honest about what you needed in, in terms of support and to grow yourself? It, it's super comforting, to be honest. Like they were so, so gracious, you know, in their in their offer of support. Um, and I think because they, they sort of recognised that they probably were in the same boat, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago um, and had to do the same. And I think, you know, I reflect what would I be like and I, I would be the same. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's awesome to have people to, to help guide and give some advice to. Um, so I was very grateful for it and I still keep in touch with them, you know, once every two or three months at the moment. And this, is, again, is part of the military mindset. One of the things that we were are forced to do really early, uh, well, for me back in the early part of my military training was, again, to let your ego at the door. And like, if you're doing little things like doing a presentation, you would rehearse in front of your mates um, because doing, being, being invulnerable and saying, hey, I need a hand with this. Can you give me like some tips? Doing those simple rehearsals and asking for guidance and asking for support are so empowering in terms of you actually being competent and effective when the moment comes. Yep. And I think, I think, it helps to be consultative. And so in, from the corporate perspective, consultation is, is so extremely important. And uh, I think there's a natural desire to consult with people who you trust. Um, and that comes from, as, as you mentioned, as juniors saying, I've got to keep rehearsing this. Or as a team, we're rehearsing this in preparation for this, you know, orders group that we need to give to a large, large organisation. I've got to say, man, I'm, I'm going to ask you a personal question. How old are you now? 36. You're 36, right. So... Uh, came out of school, went to ADFA, nine years in the military. Um, you've been now a director of a multi-global you know, billion-dollar company, you know, in terms of your, your specific role. When, when did you think, sorry, I'm going to just come back to Audi before we move on. When did you feel at what point did you start making real impact on that company, whether it be through the bottom line or whether it be through, you know, some kind of influence? How long did it take you to actually create that impact? I think the, the, the first part was um, I actually had to relearn how to be in the corporate world when I went to the national office. So uh, when, I was, when I was working um, in Queensland, I, I was on the operational side. The way I describe it, it's like being in a, a, like a combat brigade, right? So you're, everyone has a clear goal that they want to achieve. 
Um, and then all of a sudden I was in uh, divisional headquarters with everyone under the sun who were doing different jobs that I didn't understand. Um, and the, the political landscape was very, very, very different. Um, and also, you know, there, there's political landscapes um, around sort of where people are in their professional journey. Uh, and so one of the mistakes I made pretty early on when I went into that role was just assuming everyone wanted the same thing, which was let's just grow the business as fast as we can. They want that, but they sort of want it in a different way. They want to, they want to grow this part here and that part there. And for me, I always felt it was the same, which was it all comes to one big bucket of money, which is Aldi's money. So it doesn't matter how it gets there. Let's just make sure it's the most amount that can get there. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it was more about actually understanding what was driving those people in those organisations and then how to how to engage with them so that, you know, you can work more effectively together. And I think it took me, uh, and also understanding my job as well, it took me a little bit, bit of time uh, and, and learning the market because it was kind of the, one of the first roles I had where I had a direct exposure to all of the large logistics organisations in the corporate sector um, and sort of where they are, what market share they had what their strengths were, what the opportunities were, and who were the personalities that were driving their strategic objectives and how do they align with ours. Uh, so it took me probably about um, a year or so to start making an impact. And I think the key the key moment for me was um, they'll have it, Aldi was having real challenges with capacity in their distribution network. So they had eight DCs, and in particular, their frozen parts of their DCs are, are quite small and contained because they're very expensive. Um, but unless you're running a super productive throughput, it's very challenging to manage your, your inload and outload. And this became a huge problem. They were spending a lot of money um, on additional warehousing around the, around the capability. What, what became super clear to me was that actually we just needed to get everyone in a room that had a stake, well, had some skin in the game, had some involvement in this process from end to end and explain the problem and talk about it and come up with a joint solution. And it's funny, I called it the, the supply chain working group. It was the first one that, that Aldi had ever had, which was a cross-functional working group with, a, with an objective, but it was, it was co-led. So it was basically me finding various colleagues who had enough influence in their areas, pulling them together and saying, let's actually put all of our cards on the table. Let's put all the problems on the table. Let's understand the why we've got this, this situation. And then let's together build a, a path of... Um, resolution that's going to actually be mutually beneficial to everyone in this room. Um, and that was about maybe, yeah, about 18 months into that job. Yeah, this is, um, it's a really cool journey for me to see you like um, just be able to evolve and flourish in that environment just by applying the same principles of believing in yourself and believing in the skills and the systems you've got at your, at your disposal. So mate, in terms of what's, what's next. So you're, you're, where are you at the moment in terms of where you are and where your journey is leading you to? Yeah, so I, I, after I had a couple more years in that role and uh, when I was finished in the operational role at Aldi, I worked in a transformation role preparing them for uh, an, uh, an information systems uh, ERP that was coming in and that was about uh, basically an organisational redesign and building some new capability in that they needed to kind of round that picture out. Uh, and I, I kind of got to the point again where I looked at sort of is there – is there much left here for me to achieve about what I would like to do? And, and you know, I've been in Aldi for seven years at this stage. Um, and I thought, well, let's, let's, let's try something new. And I managed to, got, uh, managed to get um, hired with a consulting firm and I ran their supply chain practice. Uh, and for me, it was, it was a really cool experience. I was employee number one um, in, this, uh, in this organization. And so I had to hire people in behind me. There was no pipeline of work. So I had to go and build all that too. Um, and 
uh, unfortunately were resource constrained a little bit. So I had to be very, very deliberate in the way that, that, that I went about it. And I think, again, I, I remember reflecting, trying to think about the plan, about how we do this, reflecting on my time in defence and going, actually, you know, um, if you're going to bet, you bet big, but you bet big with contingency. So you look at, you know, where am I going to, what's my main effort? How am I going to reinforce my main effort? But how am I going to reduce the, like reduce the downside risk that comes with this? Um, and so that's sort of what I did. And I, I managed to secure quite a large piece of work with a, with a, a multi-billion dollar um, uh, drinks organisation that do, that do uh, crisps and, and chips as well uh, and did a supply chain transformation with them. But what I found when I was working in consulting was um, I missed being a part of a, of a team going in the same direction for a long period of time. Um, which, you know, that was that was really the part that was missing for me. And, and I've actually done a lot of reflection recently to think about, like, why was I missing that so much? And it fundamentally goes back to the reason that I, I joined the Defence Force in the first instance, the reason I loved being in the Defence Force and the jobs I've had, which is I really love working with people um, and, and finding those people around me and developing them and growing them and, and empowering them to do their job. And that's, that's one thing that in consulting is, is, can be quite transactional at times. Well, mate, um, I really appreciate you, like, you know, spending a little bit of time with me. It's great to see you again, not, a, not only as a mate, but to, you know, for me to learn a lot about, you know, you, you and your journey and how you've actually had to, been able to apply this, you know, on a daily, monthly, yearly basis into your new career. I just want to come and summarise here about a few of my uh, key takeaways from how you've been able to apply this military mindset for business. And it, it, for me, again, coming back to being brilliant at the basics, just doing the little things right. Um, so I've got three points here. We've got brilliant at the basics, how we empower people and systems and processes like consistency. The other thing that surprises me a little bit about that chat today that big companies have the same problem as small companies. They're maybe just a scale thing. <laughs> and when we, it's, it's, like, it's like this French accordion, you know, like everything's good, but when we pull it apart really quick, where are the gaps, you know, that are going to sit in there? And I think, I think it's, it's, it's something that, um, you know, it, people think about when they say well, where can i make a change where can i have the impact and people think large businesses say they've got everything together you know they they understand how things work they must be executing really well otherwise how could they be successful scale gives you a lot of help in that um but actually you know it's it's about finding those little areas and going here's an opportunity for me to make an impact and and here's how i go about it i mean and i think you know whether or not you're a, a large business or a small business having a, a second set of eyes to say you could you could probably do that better or you could do that differently i think is is something that you, you can't really put a price on to be honest so luke mate you're the you are the epitome for me of what military mindset for business is about the way you've been able to embrace those early experiences your career uh, in combat zones and really living you now logistics at the sharp end you know through to you know into third line, more strategic logistics in Australia, getting that out and, and literally, you know, practically applying that in corporate to the point where in a very, very short time, you're director of supply chain, you know, for a multi-billion dollar global company or the Australian chapter of it anyway. Um, just congratulations on your success. So I'm going to just put Luke's uh, LinkedIn profile into the show, not show notes below. Uh, if you're listening to it, connect with him on LinkedIn and follow his journey like a really a clever and inspirational guy. And, mate, I really appreciate your time you know, sharing your thoughts with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pete. Really great to, to see you again and, and, um, and really, really enjoyed the chat. And hopefully we can catch up over a couple of beers soon. Yeah.
Definitely. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Military Mindset for Business podcast. Do that click, like, share thing below. Um, Luke, cheers for your time and out. Thanks very much, Pete. Talk to you later.